KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Wednesday, May 19th, releasing cats instead of keeping them to adopt out. We'll have more on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. The race is on to get all San Diegans vaccinated before the state fully reopens in about a month. On Tuesday, Mira Mesa High School held a pop-up event to vaccinate students, their families, and community members. Right now, minors can only get the Pfizer vaccine. And while these school sites allow parents to sign permission slips, keep in mind that many community sites require parents to be there with their kids for the shots. Late Tuesday afternoon, about 350 people gathered in support of Palestine in downtown San Diego. The rally follows the escalating violence pitting Israel against Hamas in the Gaza Strip. One protester, Mustafa, attended the protest with his family. I'm against uh, killing of any innocent human being. Uh, people that are uh, that have a voice, which is Israeli government, uh, they don't. They're not worth more than the, the little kids that are don't have a voice. So that's the reason why we're here with our kids. President Biden now supports a ceasefire to the fighting in Gaza, but neither side has yet to agree upon the terms to do so. Outdoor dining on sidewalks, city streets, and parking lots will be allowed to continue through mid-July of 2022. That's per unanimous vote from the San Diego City Council on Tuesday. The council is working on a so-called Spaces as Places plan, which involves changing the municipal code to make outdoor dining the new normal. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, KPBS reported on a new policy at the San Diego Humane Society to release cats back into the streets instead of keeping them to be adopted or euthanized. Now, KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser says that practice is ramping up despite a lawsuit from animal rights activists. There could be as many as half a million stray cats on county streets, according to the San Diego Humane Society. To deal with all these free-roaming felines, the nonprofit is running a program where feral cats are brought in, spayed or neutered, and then released back to the streets. In March, they expanded the practice under what they call a community cat program, where even friendly cats will be released. There has been a lot of um, frustration on the part of small nonprofits and individual animal rescuers who are seeing uh, this this trend towards um, abandoning friendly domesticated cats on the streets. This doesn't sit right with Brian Pease, an animal rights activist and attorney. He's filed a legal complaint against the Humane Society to force them to stop. 
He and his clients have no problem with managing populations of feral cats by trapping and bringing them to a clinic or to the Humane Society to be spayed or neutered, and then returning them to their habitat. But then when you look at what's actually happening, when you have cats that they know are um, were previously owned and were abandoned by the owners, or cats that um, are in dangerous areas, or cats that are injured, and just certainly should not just be put back out on the street, and that's exactly what they're doing. In the city of San Diego, between July 2019 and December 2020, the Humane Society released more than 1,300 cats to the streets. That's almost double the number from the first 16 months of the program. Gary Weitzman, CEO of the San Diego Humane Society, says it's more humane to release cats rather than keeping them in a shelter. Those cats are held here for medical exams. They're in holding cages. They're, um, no matter how easy we make the environment for them, they are stressed to the max. Now consider those same cats did really well outdoors, being cared for by the community, um, being enjoying the environment, not in danger. Those cats did really well. Why don't we just spay and neuter them, prevent them from getting rabies and distemper, and have them go back and enjoy their lives? He added that any cats with a sign of ownership, including a collar or microchip, would not be released. But it's not always easy to tell whether a cat has been previously owned or not. So says Pam Harris, a longtime animal shelter volunteer who's working with Peace on the legal complaint. They say that... Um, any cat with sign of signs of ownership will not be put into the community cat program. So, for example, if a cat comes in microchipped or wearing a harness, um, that cat won't be put back. However, how do you, most people who have indoor cats don't put collars on them and don't put harnesses on them? You know, probably most of the cats who are pets are not microchipped. The safety of the cats is one concern. The other is the impact they have on the overall ecosystem, specifically bird populations. Jim Pugh, conservation director of the San Diego Audubon Society, describes the cats as an invasive species. There are huge environmental impacts. You know, we know that each, each of those cats takes several birds a month. Pugh says his ideal solution to the stray cat issue would be to create giant warehouses where cats could live. We see, you know, these daycare centers for pets, you know, where they have indoor facilities and they have toys and exercise for them and stuff. If they're going to keep animals, they ought to be kept indoors. And that reporting from KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. Annual inspections of California's nursing homes were paused for more than a year because of the pandemic. KPBS's Amitha Sharma says those inspections have now resumed and anecdotal evidence suggests the inspectors have their work cut out for them. Conditions in many facilities across the state have grown incredibly dire over the course of the past uh, the pandemic and if anything are, are as bad as they've ever been right now. Advocates say a reason for this is family members of nursing home residents were not allowed in the facilities for more than a year. They've long served as watchdogs for neglect and abuse and as caregivers. Mike Dark of California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform says the absence of family members along with staffing shortages means problems that might have been flagged quickly 
were allowed to fester. There's not enough staff to make sure people are clean and, and bathed. There's not enough staff to make sure people aren't developing bed sores. These are problems that have spread across the state, and it's going to take a long time for Cal DPH to really get on top of this problem. In an emailed statement, the California Department of Public Health said during the past year, it still sent inspectors to investigate the most severe complaints. And that was KPBS's Amitha Sharma. Medical staff at Donovan State Prison have been asking inmates who declined COVID-19 tests to sign a waiver, releasing the prison from any liability for their illness or death. iNewsource investigative reporter Mary Plummer has more. Legal and medical experts who reviewed a copy of the form obtained by iNewsource viewed it as unethical and deceptive. UC Hastings law professor Hadar Aviram says asking inmates to sign the waiver may be unconstitutional. You are housing them for a certain number of months or years, and during those months, you have to feed and clothe and take care of them and make sure that they don't get sick. This is part of your responsibility. The waiver says the corrections department is free of any responsibility for complications. A spokesperson for the prison's health care system said the form was standard. And that was iNewsource investigative reporter Mary Plummer. This story was co-reported by Jill Castellano at iNewsource, an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. Friendship Park turns 50 this summer. It's the bi-national garden along the border between San Diego and Tijuana. And despite the public desire to celebrate that big 5-0, the park has been closed for more than a year and will remain so for now. KPBS's Max Rivlin-Nadler reports. Friendship Park and the bi-national circle that's a part of it has been a meeting place for families separated by a border wall that has only grown higher and longer in recent years. Advocates say it's a vital space for reunions and healing, and one that hasn't been open to the public during one of the most tumultuous times in recent history. For over a year, Borderfield State Park has been closed, one of the several state parks that were closed during the coronavirus pandemic. Over the last few weeks, however, the park has reopened. Friendship Circle, which is within Borderfield State Park, has not. Border Patrol, which controls access to the park, has not opened the gate on the American side to allow people to go into the circle and see their family members or friends. They had told advocates that Friendship Park would reopen for eight hours every weekend, once people could once again access it through the state park. Robert Vivar is with Friends of Friendship Park. In a meeting uh, a few days prior uh, to this uh, past uh, Sunday, uh, we were informed that, uh, no, that because of staffing, uh, purposes uh, that uh, the park would remain closed until further notice, uh, which, of course, uh, you know, uh, is something that we're not very happy about. In a statement, Customs and Border Protection said because of the influx of migrants on the southern border, it cannot staff the park, and that it cannot reopen Friendship Circle until it has sufficient manpower to ensure it is safe for everyone. Vivar thinks that reasoning doesn't quite hold up. There are already several Border Patrol agents posted up at the site regularly on weekends. And he doesn't believe letting a few dozen people into the park would require extra staffing. He believes that with the rise in Mexican citizens trying to get into the U.S. through the desert or on boats, 
Friendship Park could act as needed relief for people who are hard-pressed to reunite with their families. Vivar himself was deported and came to Friendship Park on the Mexican side for refuge and comfort. People get desperate for their families and they, they'll do anything uh, and even risk their life to be able to be with their family. Supporters of the park hope it can reopen as quickly as possible and definitely in time for the park's 50th anniversary this August. And that was KPBS's Max Revlin Nadler. Coming up, a San Diego Superior Court ruling that overturned an Oceanside ballot initiative could have widespread consequences on housing development in the state. Plus, KPBS is hosting its annual GI Film Festival. We'll have those stories next, just after the break. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Efforts to increase housing in San Diego often end up in the courts. And last week, a ruling on one housing development could have statewide implications. A citizen's ballot initiative to stop a proposed housing development in Oceanside won in last November's election. But a superior court judge ruled that a new state law invalidates that initiative, since the North River Farms development was approved by the Oceanside City Council. San Diego has seen a number of council and board approved housing projects defeated by voters at the ballot box. But this ruling puts future citizen actions against development in question. Phil Deal is a reporter for the San Diego Union Tribune who's covering the story. He spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh. Tell us a little more about the proposed North River Farms. Where would it be built? It would be as many as 585 homes uh, the site is about 215 acres. It is in South Morrow Hills, which is an agricultural region of northeastern Oceanside. And Oceanside City Council members approved it? Yes, Oceanside approved it in November of 2019. It was a three to two vote with Esther Sanchez, now mayor at the time she was a council member. She was against it and Ryan Kine voted against it. So as happens frequently, people who didn't want the housing development got together, they collected signatures, and got the North River Farms development on the ballot for an up or down vote. The people opposed to the development won, but apparently that wasn't the end of it. Well, the developer filed a couple lawsuits, and both were filed before the referendum. 
that initially they challenged the referendum saying that they didn't think the signatures were valid, that there was some underhandedness in gathering the signatures, but a judge overruled that claim and dismissed it. What is this new state law or code the judge based his ruling on? His ruling is based on the Housing Crisis Act of 2019, which is something the legislature passed and the governor signed to streamline the whole development process because there is such a housing shortage, there's a homeless crisis, there's uh, rents are up and housing costs are really going up. So the idea is to increase the supply of housing and make it more affordable. And he ruled the ballot initiative wasn't valid. Why? Well, he said that the legislation is intended to maximize housing development and that therefore it preempts the referendum, that the referendum itself sets a limit on housing development. If this ruling were to stand, what kind of implications would it have for future development in the state? It has strong implications for at least two other projects. The Newland Sierra project, which was overturned in March 2020 by a referendum. Another incident or another development is the Fenita Ranch in Santee, which uh, the Santee City Council approved, and there was a referendum, and they agreed to place that on the ballot in November 2022. So that's more than a year away. But the developer there has already said he will challenge that in court based on this Housing Crisis Act. Now, critics say the judge got it wrong and that the Housing Crisis Act doesn't apply to voters, but to government agencies. Can you explain that? The Housing Act is designed to streamline the whole application process. Like there was a previous case in Los Angeles where the LA City Council approved a project or denied a project. The City Council denied a project because it didn't have enough affordable housing. And the a Superior Court judge there overruled that decision by the council and said that the project could proceed because of the Housing Crisis Act. So that's a case where it was based more not on a referendum. It was aimed at a city council action. And so far, the Housing Crisis Act seems to have generated actually more litigation than home building. Isn't that the case? Well, locally, that seems to be the case. There's definitely a couple big cases in the works. And it's hard to say. I mean, it hasn't been around that long. So it's pretty new still. So it's hard to say statewide what the effect will be. But it does seem, I mean, the referendum is a pretty widely used process. So there's a chance it could have a widespread effect. What was the reaction to the North River Farms ruling from both sides of this issue? Integral Communities, which is the developer building North River Farms, they were pretty much thrilled with it. And they said that, you know, it's good for the community. And clearly the area needs more housing. There is a huge homeless problem in Oceanside and throughout North County. So the developer there was pleased and, and said, you know, it upholds the, the purpose of the act. Well, and the opponents, the people like Kathy Carbone, who was one of the leaders of the referendum, she said she was horrified by it. But the people I talked to who weren't ready to issue a statement said it was clearly a bad thing for voters' rights because they just were unhappy with it. What's the next move, do we know, in, in that case? There are multiple parties, I mean, named Integral, the developer, 
uh, named the city, the city clerk, the county registrar of voters, and some of the people who circulated the random or referendum were all named as parties to this. Uh, so, and I guess any one of them could file an appeal. The city says they have 60 days to decide whether or not they will appeal. And it appears likely they will, but I guess it's hard to say. It's up to the city council. The city council will decide probably in a closed session, not this week, but in the next few weeks, what to do. Now, you spoke with Stephen Russell, head of the San Diego Housing Federation, who told you that developments, housing developments, should proceed within the rules of existing general plans. And he said he was not a fan of ballot box zoning. So do you think that in general, housing advocates are in favor of this ruling against citizens' ballot initiatives? As he pointed out, developers want a clear-cut path toward their project. And Things that go back and forth unpredictably like this are are never good. So, uh, and I think a lot of developers feel that way. They don't want to see anything go to a referendum. It costs them a lot of money to uh, defeat this. I mean, Integral has spent millions of dollars uh, on the referendum and they lost and they're spending a lot of money on court cases and so on. So, I don't think they're happy about the referendum process. That was Phil Deal from the San Diego Union-Tribune, speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh. KPBS kicked off its annual GI Film Festival San Diego last night. The six-day festival is virtual this year, and as KPBS's Melissa May tells us, it features a record 38 films. May is Military Appreciation Month, and the GI Film Festival San Diego honors the stories of service members and veterans through film. Keisha Javis-Jones is an advisory committee member of the festival. She is a Marine combat veteran and loves spreading awareness of this festival. Even after serving 10 years, was not one to want to talk to anyone else about what I did or how I served or especially combat experience. Um, It was very hard to talk about in the very beginning. And this festival brings it to life, uh, you know, without putting me in a vulnerable space. The festival serves as a bonding experience. It's a great opportunity to bring veterans and service members now together and then just celebrate our sacrifices and bond over just sharing each other's stories and supporting each other and everything that you're doing now. Pacifica J. Sauer is a U.S. Navy veteran and the director of the film's opening night film, The Invisible Project. Women are the most visible service member and the most invisible veteran. And what a perfect place to tell women veterans' stories than with an audience that already cares. The film is a documentary-style infodrama. Some of the issues women face are devastatingly scary, and some of the traumas women have endured are heartbreaking. But it's very uplifting when you see them persevere The Navy veteran has a message for her fellow female vets. And all the women veterans out there, you are not invisible. Your life is worth it. Your service was worth it, no matter how long ago it was. 
The GI Film Festival San Diego has something for everyone. Current military, veterans, and civilians can all expect to experience some uncomfortable truths and triumphant highs. Although the festival is virtual this year, all participants and viewers can expect to be united through the awareness that those who served and those who are serving make the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom. And that reporting from KPBS's Melissa May. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.